the historical approach of governments when it comes to identity has been very public sector focused. And as a German, for example, I use public sector services 1.2 times a year on average. 1.2, that's nothing. I use private sector services dozens of times a day, maybe a hundred times a day. So if we really want to optimize for value to citizens, we're not going to start with public use cases first, but that's what governments have done over and over and over again and are still doing in Europe. We're going to start with private sector use cases. And so I think that's just one example where we, by design, we can increase value, utility, and therefore adoption if we really focus on where people spend their time. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Frontier Talk, where we explore the intersection of identity, people, and technology. Over the last eight episodes, we've looked at applications of decentralized identity across a wide range of industries, be it mobility, telco, or healthcare. But now, it's time to flip the switch. The digitization of public services is something that has piqued my interest of late. Um, governments across the world are perceived to be slow, inefficient, and bureaucratic. So the question remains, can the blitzscaling world of technology cope with the slow-moving world of government? To help us answer this question, we have someone who has worked tirelessly to bring digital identity to the more fragile contexts of the world. Ever so passionate about helping governments make the most out of tech, he is now known as the man behind the recent cross-border SSI initiatives involving countries such as Germany, Spain, and Finland. Here to share his take on the challenges and opportunities for government reform in the post-COVID era, Sebastian Manhart, Technical Advisor on Digital Identity for the German Chancellery. Sebastian, I'm delighted to have you on the pod. Thank you very much for having me today, Raj. Right. Um, Sebastian, I want to start off by taking a step back and exploring your journey, so to say. So you pursued a degree in developmental economics from Cambridge. So, so I'm curious to know, how did you come across digital identity? And, and what excites you about a decentralized ecosystem of digital identities? Yeah, I mean, I have to take maybe one or two or three steps back in, in that situation. Uh, like pretty right. much anyone working in digital identity, I didn't uh, set out to work in digital identity. Uh, for me, okay. I came into it through the humanitarian sector, which is maybe a bit unusual. But I set out to work in what's called the, the aid or humanitarian sector, which is a 200 billion a year industry. And when I was um, getting into it, uh, very much from an entrepreneurial perspective, um, we noticed with my colleagues at the time that there was a huge challenge with transparency and accountability in the sector. A lot of money got wasted. Um, and we essentially found that digital identity was one of the missing building blocks uh, in all these huge aid programs that are happening around the world. And so um, I helped uh, set up and run um, uh, probably the world's only nonprofit biometrics company called Simprints which right. uh, I was the CEO of until um, a couple of months ago, until early in the year. And so for mm -hmm. six years, I was very much focused on digital identity in last mile settings. So, you know, Afghanistan, Somalia, Nigeria, all around the world, focus on um, how can you use digital identity to empower individuals who otherwise would have no type of identity and allowing right. them to access, you know, healthcare services, education, cash payments, all of that. But then I did that for a number of years, and uh, as you can imagine, I worked uh, a lot with governments and these systems were heavily centralized. 
And that's the only way. In some of these contexts, you know, people are illiterate very often. They don't have smartphones. There's no internet connectivity. It's a very harsh environment. So you can't really deploy the solutions that we're going to talk about today. And so you end up working a lot with heavily centralized solutions, often in very shady data centers with governments that, you know, you don't necessarily trust. And that kind of started to flip me more and more. Uh, and I decided to jump on the other side and I looked more and more to Europe where I see right. the future of digital identity being uh, designed as we speak. Um, okay. And I got very interested in the opposite approach, which is one where you don't leave the power to an individual government to do whatever they want with all the sensitive data. And so yeah, that's how I got into digital identity and then into decentralized uh, digital identity. Right. That's fascinating. We'll definitely look into your learnings from working with developing countries. But before that, could you perhaps double click on your roles and responsibilities as a technical yeah. advisor to the German Chancellery? Yeah. So in, in Germany, and we're going to talk about this, it's, it's pretty interesting because you have um, the government uh, itself. Obviously, now the government is changing, but the still acting government um, under Angela Merkel spearheading um, a digital identity program focused on decentralized identity. And as far as I know, now there are new countries who are also joining, like New Zealand and others, but uh, it's quite rare for government to take the lead and focus on decentralized identity as the main approach. Um, so that was very interesting for me. And I started getting in touch and we started kind of understanding what they needed to do. And uh, my role there is very much focused on Europe and on the international context. So there's a national program and obviously, we want to make sure that whatever happens in Germany can work across borders in Europe, but also, frankly, that Europe as a whole is going to go in a progressive direction when it comes to digital identity. And so I collaborate with other member states, with the commission. I work a lot on the EIDAS proposal, uh, which we might talk about today, um, and I manage these international stakeholders for the chancellery. Amazing. I think it's, it's, it's quite fascinating to hear about how you manage stakeholder expectations and, and your, I don't know, your experiences on the negotiating table. That's yeah. something that I would love to explore with you uh, because you played a key role in these recent joint deals involving, you know, big players such as Germany, Spain and Finland where they're set to explore cross-border SSI initiatives. I don't know if I'm reaching a bit with this question, but could you perhaps talk us through what goes behind the scenes? How is the experience at the negotiating table? It's very interesting, right? Because when you are talking uh, to governments, um, they're very different perspectives depending at the level that you're talking to and also different mm -hmm. uh, incentives, frankly. And when it comes to decentralized identity, one thing that surprised me was actually how many evangelists exist in government for decentralized identity and SSI. And most of them are at the working level. So they're the people who are actually get shit done day to day, but they're not necessarily the people who can set the direction that a government is going to go when it comes to identity as a whole. And so I think the, the challenge here was to, you know, I, I literally, I, I spoke to, I think, 300 people across all wow. European member states, the commission everywhere to identify who were those evangelists, because I knew I needed them. But then I, I worked with these evangelists in the respective countries to convince the the political advisors, you know, the people who are very close to, you know, the politicians who will eventually sign these deals right. and um, get them on board and understand. But really, we did that by understanding what uh, the incentives and motivations for each country and each politicians were. Um, and what came out of that was that there were a number of countries. You mentioned Spain, the Netherlands, Finland, but there's a number of other countries in Europe 
that are very progressive when it comes to their thinking on digital ID, who get that now's the time to act. And then there, we found some politicians who um, were willing to put their name on it. Um, okay. And so that was uh, how we went about it. And yeah, I'm glad that it worked out. Right. And you briefly mentioned about expectations of stakeholders. And when you're dealing with politicians, you're going to deal with a wide range of requirements and expectations. So I'm curious to know, how do you navigate through the expectations of each and every stakeholder? And perhaps what's the one crucial skill that served you really well on the negotiating table? I mean, I did, um, I've did. i been an entrepreneur for 10, 12 years before joining government. And so I think that served me well because uh, I learned how to sell and I learned that selling requires listening and okay. listening very intently. And I think that was uh, probably the most important skill to understand all these different stakeholders and their motivations was just to to talk to them, but not to talk at them, but to really listen to them. Um, and what came out of that was, as I said, sort of a very diverse set of expectations, uh, but also a lot of commonalities with what we do, what we were trying to do. Um, and so I would say the one skill is definitely listening, um, even you know across cultures, across borders. It's not always easy. Europe is a very diverse, uh, heterogeneous continent. Um, but it it worked out well because we found these commonalities in terms of the vision that we were trying to achieve. Right. Um, so as Sebastian just mentioned, listening is a very important trait in anything and everything. So to our audience, I'm sure that you're enjoying listening to uh, his insights out here. But I think the next step is responding to his <laughs> comments. So please get on the comment section and share in your insights and feedback and help us get better on this journey. Um Moving forward, um, you know, you've worked very closely with developing countries to bring digital identity, and now you've switched um, towards uh, doing the same for the EU, for that matter. So I'm curious to know, how would you compare bringing digital identity to developing countries versus the EU? And what are some of the learnings of your previous experience as COO of Simprints that have now permeated through to your new role? Yeah, I mean... At its most basic, every government is trying to achieve the same, which is to improve the lives of its citizens. And so I think that's something that is the same no matter where it worked. And you find brilliant, very caring and forward-looking people in government wherever you go. And I think that's something that um, for me was quite inspiring because we, I think, uh, especially in the private sector, people outside of government, there's a pretty, government has a very bad reputation in many places. And you just expect right. these lazy people who slack off, don't work, and just, you know, get their paycheck at the end of the month. Couldn't be further from the truth, in my experience. Call me, maybe I got lucky, but I just want to be very clear. Okay. I work with amazing people all across the world in government. And this, the, state, the starting point is, is very different. On the one hand, the developing countries I worked in usually have very few resources. And so they have to, it's, there's almost a scarcity mindset which leads to a lot of prioritization of where those resources go. Unfortunately, those resources often come from abroad. I say unfortunately because that creates a dependency on right. uh, the political whims of the West, you might say, that can mm -hmm. change overnight and might lead to overnight budgetary constraints in a developing country. So that's a pretty bad, I would say, difference. On the other hand, you don't have to deal with legacy systems. So now in Europe, when I think about the EIDAS, like, Essentially, there's this wish list where we want SSI, decentralization, we, but we also want all the existing legacy systems to, to be used. And then we want interoperability between all of that. And that's kind of impossible, <laughs> but that's how people are talking in Europe because everyone wants to protect what they've already invested so much money in and so much mm -hmm. experience. 
in the developing world, you know, you rock up and often there's there's no nothing existing and you can just design what makes most sense tomorrow, not yesterday. And so you can create incredible systems. Um, so I've, I've made very good experiences that way. And now when I work in Europe, sometimes I think, oh, my God, there's so much baggage that we're carrying with us. Um, so, yeah, there's pros and cons, but also a lot of commonalities. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, as an entrepreneur, you might know, I don't know, working with limited resources and in that scarcity mindset, more often than not tends to get the best out of you because with limited exactly. resources, it's what you have. And then you just got to go out there and do the magic, so to say. So you've repeated this multiple times um, that, you know, you're really bullish about identity in EU. Now, my question to you is that the EU is fundamentally not known to be software centric. So what makes you bullish about the EU identity dream, so to say? Yeah, I think the EU has a lot going for it. Like I am personally really inspired by the process that we're seeing with the EIDAS. For those who don't know, the EIDAS, I would kind of call it the GDPR of identity. GDPR should be a name to most people, right? But um, I hope so. <laughs> Europe is basically trying to define the most advanced uh, common framework for the use of digital identities uh, on a continent. And it's amazing because what I'm seeing is, you know, it's the core group that is currently driven by the European Commission is around 100 policymakers from 27 member states. But then at national level, each of these 27 member states have probably another five to 30 people working on this. So just in this process right now, you get several thousand of Europe's best, most tech savvy and tech driven policymakers getting together to define a common framework that will you know be hopefully the gold standard for 5 10 20 years to come and i think this process is unique and really incredible and so that's something that i think sets europe apart there's nothing like it anywhere in the world as far as i know and and that's one thing and then on the other hand i think you've got amazing the private sector is really flourishing when it comes to ssi in europe mm -hmm. if there's many hubs of decentralized technology in general, uh, you know, if, especially if you think crypto and, and DeFi, but also SSI, you've got a lot of amazing private sector companies. And what I'm seeing increasingly, and I think we might talk about this later, is the nexus between them and the government mm -hmm. becoming stronger. And I think that can create an environment that will set us apart. That's the positive side. I would say the negative side is when you're trying to get 2,000 policymakers from 27 member states to agree on something, things can get watered down and uh, and, and the, almost crippled to become useless. So it can, get, it can go in either direction, but I'm an optimist and I still hope that what we're seeing right now in Europe will, will go down the, the positive route. Brilliant. I mean, optimists tend to get more done than pessimists. So that's, you're already on a good track anyways. Um, right. So now that we've explored the, the state of digital identity in the EU, let us dive into how governments can effectively bring SSI initiatives to market. Now, what gets me excited about this intersection of government, citizen, and tech is the fact that all three parameters are, in, are interconnected. You know, governments are responsible for meeting the needs of citizens, while tech essentially serves as a force multiplier in bringing about rapid systemic change. Um, Self-sovereign identity is based on the principle of independent control and existence, but state-issued credentials kind of divorce this possibility because a person can lose their identity if the state revokes his or her credentials. So my question to you is, why do you think governments should be the identity provider of choice? Yeah. 
And um, I mean, I have a lot of work, a lot of friends who work in the decentralized tech space, and we certainly have interesting conversations about the role of government uh, versus the right. role of the private sector. And I think that, um, I mean, from my perspective, I see government not as inherently bad or good. I think that government plays an incredibly important function in a functioning state of providing essential services to its citizens. And for me, digital identity or more identity, foundational legal identity is a core, is a fundamental human right uh, as defined by the UN and is something that has to be provided by the state, just like other basic services like, you know, clean water, electricity. It is just something that we require to move around in, in our daily lives. Right. And I, I personally think that we go a step too far if we think that, you know, we can live without that and that the private sector will solve for that as well. Because in my view, we I would love a borderless world where everyone, you know, hold hand, holds hands and we get everything uh, that we want. But the reality is we live in nation states and in those governments have to play this role. Um, and so I that's where I, that's my starting point. Right. Then there are many different ways that you can go about. The reality is in most states, and I mentioned my experiences, uh, for example, in sub-Saharan Africa, um, you have very strong centralized authorities that wield a lot of power over citizens and, and their data. And that's where I think you can get more creative. For example, governments like Germany recognize that they have a duty to provide foundational ID in digital form as well to its citizens, but are open to then decentralizing everything else. Right to make sure that the government doesn't know what you do with that identity, doesn't know what other credentials you you connect to it or you use, and uh, and that's I think the way to go is that you almost have kind of a state-flavored decentralized identity or SSI, where you have the government issuing the core credential that you need, but then everything else happens without their knowledge and without their interference, and that's where I hope we're gonna go. Right. Um, and now adopting credentials pretty much is a two-way street, right? On the one hand, you have uh, the parties that are building solutions. On the other hand, you have citizens, citizens who need to adopt the solutions. So, so when it comes to onboarding users, A, how do you limit the technical complexity and uncertainty for them? And B, how do you motivate them to actually get on board and try out the solution? Yeah, I'll start with the second part because I think it's a bit easier. It's, it's all about creating value for, for citizens. And right. um, the answer here is uh, let's look where citizens spend their time and where they experience pain, pain points in their daily lives. The historical approach of governments when it comes to identity has been very public sector focused. And as a German, for example, I use public sector services 1.2 times a year on average. 1.2. Mm -hmm. That's right. nothing. Yeah. I use private sector services dozens of times a day, maybe 100 times a day. So if we really want to optimize for value to citizens, we're not going to start with public use cases first. But that's what governments have done over and over and over again and are still doing in Europe. We're going to start with private sector use cases. And so I think that's just one example where we, by design, we can increase value, utility, and therefore adoption if we really focus on where people spend their time. You know, banking, travel, e-commerce, um, you name it. Uh, now with COVID, obviously, there's also very strong public use cases like a COVID certificate. But you, you need to find those that have the highest utility. In terms of then usability, um, I think that's a huge challenge, especially for the decentralized uh, identity space, 
because there's still a pretty high barrier to entry. Um, you know, you need people who have, as far as I know, who have a smartphone, who uh, can use their smartphone. I have uh, many, you know, if, even if I think of my parents, they wouldn't be able to use the solutions that we're currently discussing. So we need right. to lower the barrier there more and more. And also when it comes to interfaces, um, there's still a lot of work to be done. Um, if I think of the, the UXs of uh, a lot of the applications that I've encountered, um, they're getting better, but they're still far removed from some of the most intuitive applications that we use in other areas of our lives. And so I think we need to summarize on the one hand, we really need to drive utility. And that's, I think, a design choice of what use cases you focus on. And then we just need to push the private sector more and more to develop the most user-friendly applications we can get. Um, but if we can get those two together, I think we'll see a lot of adoption in the space. Right. And speaking about adoption, uh, when it comes to building such solutions, do you think the focus should be on, on a specific use case or should the focus be on agency? What's your take? When you say agency, you mean? By agency, I mean focus on the individual, on mm -hmm. having complete control of his or her data. I mean, I, I don't see them as mutually exclusive, but if we're pragmatic about how we roll this out, and we're talking about a lot of also pretty regulated use cases, for example, banking. Mm -hmm. And as such, I think we need to uh, roll out gradually. So we start with a wallet and ideally I see a, a world where people can switch wallets as they please, right? Where there's a full data portability. So there doesn't have to be one wallet. It could be plenty of wallets and they choose whatever they like, but then they, we need to roll out. We can't just say, okay, from tomorrow you can do everything with this wallet. That's not how the world works. So mm -hmm. my experience is you need to start with specific sectors and companies that are going to either issue or verify those credentials. And so my, my recommendation is let's start with the highest utility sectors and use cases and then gradually increase what you can do with that wallet. Obviously, hopefully in five or 10 years, you can do everything with it. But tomorrow we need to pick one use case, the day after tomorrow, the next, and then gradually increase. Brilliant. Um, and speaking about the supply side, now you've been an entrepreneur, so I'm curious to know, what do you think are some of the top priorities for anyone looking to build decentralized identity solutions? And more importantly, and I think this is more relevant in the SSI space, how do you distinguish between noise and a proper assessment of public opinion? Yeah, I think for, for what to build, um, I mean, if I, if I put my, both my entrepreneur and my government lens on, um, I, I really think that it, open source and transparency will play a very, very big role if we want to see wide-scale adoption. And this, and, and for me, this is something that I've really seen as well with the whole COVID apps. And being open, it's almost an expectation by government, although I find that government often doesn't really understand why they want open source. They just say it has to be open source. And, but what I really see in practice is that open source creates a lot of trust in, in, the, citizens, in the citizens because they then know that whatever they are putting their very their most sensitive data into has been vetted by civil society. And so I just think that, you know, I would strongly recommend adopting a business and development product development model that embraces open source uh, over proprietary systems. I just think you're going to get further. Mm -hmm. The second thing is, and I think open source helps, but this can be done without open source is interoperability. Um, as a, we, as government, we are, very reluctant to a future where one or two providers will be able to lock you into a specific wallet and uh, almost force you to have all your credentials just with them. 
Um, so you will get much more traction with government, much more funding, and uh, also political backing if from the beginning uh, you can be interoperable. And if you see the latest announcement, I think it was yesterday, uh, of the Data Services Act um, that was released um, about pl platform governance, it goes in that direction too, right? Europe is right. basically going to almost force big platforms to be interoperable. And this is what we're going to expect, I think, in the digital identity space as well. Right. Fingers crossed that actually materializes into something really productive. Um, now, one of the key takeaways from the pandemic has been the embracing of more risk and adoption of technology to actually drive change, something that government usually tends not to be very good at, but has now been forced to do so because of the situation we find ourselves in. So, so my question to you is, how can governments make the transition from a slow, risk-averse, waterfall approach to a more dynamic, agile approach? So for me, this as an entrepreneur coming into kind of this, this space has been one of the most fascinating aspects. Um, Was it beautiful, right? Like, I mean, just, just, just being in that environment, so to say. <laughs> no, but it's, it's interesting because I, I think my, my team in the Chancellor is probably a bit unusual. I understand okay. uh, in terms of uh, how it runs compared to most like government IT projects. I and mean, we, mm -hmm. we also got some, uh, yeah, some uh, bad, bad press for that because we are a pretty agile team. And it's funny right. when you're in government because, uh, as you said, everyone complains that you're so slow and that you never get anything done. And then when you try to be agile and fast, people also complain because you're being too fast and you're not taking enough precaution. Um, mm -hmm. But it, what's interesting for me more than anything is that government in itself could be one of the most risk-taking environments. Right, because if you're a civil servant, you can do. You're not going to get fired, right? Like you can take true. exorbitant risks as a civil servant compared to anyone else in the private sector, an entrepreneur. Like you, you won't be able to pay your bills next month if you really fuck yeah. up. In in this in this environment in the civil service, um, you can you can take big risks, and so this is something that I really hope we're going to see more. The problem is that government and the civil service, because of this kind of certainty of job security. We attracts people who are not risk-taking. So you end right. up with people who are very risk-averse in positions where they could, in theory, take a lot of risks. And um, that's kind of why I hope that in future you're going to see more people with an entrepreneurial background or private sector background joining government and realizing that they can take risks and then doing it. But again, this is kind of more my hope. What I see is also difficult is that everyone is afraid of uh, press, right? Like whatever you do in government, it's tax dollars. Yep. It's not your private profits you're reinvesting. It's my money. It's your money. And That's so um, there's rightly a lot of heat on anything you do. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, I hope we're going to see more agile approaches in government because I think everyone would benefit from it. Absolutely. And I'm curious to learn more about the composition of your team. I mean, do you hire guys who have an entrepreneurial background who are perhaps more younger, more dynamic, more risk-taking? And is it like, how big is your team, so to say? Do you keep it more lean to get things done more quicker? What's your... Yeah, what's your way of doing things? It's a really nice team because the way that the chancellery works, it's uh, it has a, it has core teams, but then it really picks people from all the different ministries and brings them into kind of uh, yeah cross ministry teams. And so mm -hmm. it's nice because you've got people from Ministry of Finance who know a lot about you know uh, decentralized finance, crypto, banking. Then you get people right. from Ministry of Education who know a lot about you know digital diplomas and all of that, and you bring them all together. <clears throat> and so the team has grown you know, quite a bit. And now probably the core team is around, let's say 15 people who manage like the specific project. And, and you get, it's largely young and you get a lot of people who I think, you know, people who work on this topic, who are excited about decentralized identity tend to be younger, tech savvy, 
uh, forward-looking. And so it's a it's pretty interesting team. Uh, but again, it's my first experience in government, so I don't know how representative it is of other other places. <laughs> right. Brilliant. Um, I think now's a good time to bring the heat to the podcast. Um, there was recently a, a high-profile attempt in Germany for a public-private cooperation for a reusable digital ID, um, a digital driver's license. It lasted only one week in the app stores before it was removed for insufficient security testing. Um, what lessons should we take away from this case? And do you think this could have been avoided if the tech was not hyped as much as it is right now? Totally. Uh, <laughs> and uh, we've certainly learned a lot from this. It, it, it was a mm -hmm. fuck up. There's no way around it. Um, right. It was um, released in a way that it was simply not robust enough for what it what it then encountered. Uh, and we've learned a lot of lessons that I can share. And um, what I think was unfortunate is uh, it was released shortly before the German election. And okay. as such, it got... Uh, it Panned even more, right? Inadvertently, yeah. <laughs> significantly more attention than we yeah, hoped absolutely. for. And so what we thought was going to be a fairly silent release turned into uh, 300,000 signups within 24 hours or something. And wow. obviously a lot of media coverage. And doesn't change the fact that the underlying issues were there independently of how many people focused on it, right? And um, I think one, one lesson is um, you need to rope in civil society more and earlier because a lot of these um, security mistakes, but also, frankly, um, other mistakes that were flagged that had nothing to do with security were, were flagged by civil society. We've got a very strong, uh, especially kind of tech uh, hacker community in, in Germany, uh, and they they took it apart and put it back together. And so it was in there. That could have happened earlier. That could have happened before we released it and together with them. And so that's definitely a major takeaway is how to collaborate better with civil society. Mm -hmm. The other one is communication. And this is something that really pains me because as an entrepreneur, when I ran my own company, we could communicate whatever we wanted. You know, the approval system was calling the CEO and that's it. And now anything you want to communicate has to go through lengthy approval processes, sometimes spanning ministries, which means right. that, you know, you release something, something happens. Okay, shit happens in an agile development setting. I know that that's part of what we do, but usually you can iterate and you can react and you can talk about it. In this case, the government, and this is something I think a big learning for us is how do we, how are we able to communicate with the public? Because you get a lot of heat from the media, but there's no counter perspective from the government in this whole process because we can't quickly react. So this is something that I think we need to think about better in the future because the citizens need to hear different opinions, need to hear also Absolutely. the government's position on it. Um, and um, I think the final one is, um, again, coming back to use cases. Um, this was the second use case. Mm -hmm. we, the, we probably should have picked one that was a bit less high profile and kind of gradually increase uh, the, the, the impact of the use right. cases. A drive, everyone has a driving license, right? So like people were going to jump on this. Maybe we should have picked something that had a slightly more niche uh, implementation because SSI is still pretty nascent. We're aware of that. Mm -hmm. And so um, things are going to go wrong and uh, we need to find a way for things to go wrong without, you know, things being tanked. So um, right. this is, I think, what we'll try to do better next time. I mean, it's crazy, right? I mean, this serves as a very interesting paradox on how governments effectively function. You know, as I mentioned at the start of the podcast, you know, governments are perceived to be very slow and inefficient. And on the other hand, you have something that's rolled out so quickly in a blitzscaling manner compared to products, say, in the Valley. And, you know, it's the fail-fast approach wherein you fail, but 
I mean, you know, the chances of failing are high, but hey, you've at least got something rolled out. So, so like, you know, what's the incentive now for governments to actually roll things out in a more quicker pace? Because they know they're going to be subjected to more heat if mm-hmm. they go on and do so. So how do you navigate this, this paradox of sorts, so to say? You need strong personalities. Like okay. uh, the boss of my team, <laughs> he, he, I give him a lot of credit because he, he gets a lot Brilliant. of heat. And for example, he used, he even used the, the uh, fail fast or fail forward um, um, terminology on Twitter and he got eaten alive for it. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I understand why, right? People are like, this is very sensitive data. You can't fail fast when it comes to sensitive citizen data. I get all of that. So I get both perspectives. But the reality is um, I've worked in a tech company for six years. We are going to be much further in six or 12 months because this happened than if we had tried to plan it for two years and then slowly rolled it out in a super controlled manner, right? Absolutely. So we need to find a middle ground. And again, I think you need strong personalities who are willing to take some heat and take a few punches and keep going uh, because, yeah, you need to have thick skin to, to, to go through that. Absolutely. I mean, I think it's all about timing in the end. Perhaps a little later would have been more sufficient. I think post elections, but <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. that's that's for anyone to guess. Um, so so speaking about this intersection between government and tech, um, you know, government relies on the tech community to actually build uh, novel solutions. So so what do you think are some of the unsolved gaps between these two communities, and how do you bridge these gaps? Because you've seen both sides, so to say. This is a topic I'm. I'm very passionate about because I see the gap as being way too big. And this is true in decentralized identity. It's, it's true in decentralized finance. It's true in crypto. It's, it, you see almost you know, a, a flourishing tech community that is really pushing the envelope and that is creating incredible products, being quite visionary, really thinking ahead, but that sees itself. And I think that's also because of the people who are drive, driving these movements. It sees itself as almost an antidote to government. You know, government has failed us. We can do better. We can stand on our own. Kind of, we spoke about this a bit earlier. And then you see government who perceives these uh, these trends, these technologies as a threat, and they are a threat, right? They're a threat to the status quo. Uh, if we think, if if you know, blockchain applications are going to take off, a lot of industries are going to that are acting as intermediaries are going to fail to survive. Absolutely. And these industries have a lot of leverage on government, right? And so I kind of see that and I see a big gap between the two and I don't see people moving between the two. I mean, civil servants who join a crypto startup, I haven't seen many and also haven't seen many you know, of my crypto friends saying like, hey, I really want to work for, for government. And so right. you get a gap that is just increasing with every year. And that leads to almost either we're going to fight each other or, and I hope that this is going to happen, that some governments are going to embrace these technologies. I mean, El Salvador is an interesting example when it comes to blockchain, Mm -hmm. right? Whatever you want to make of it, I find it super interesting that a government is just saying like, okay, let's try to to embrace it. And I think those governments are going to learn a lot and are going to really like move ahead much, much quicker than the rest. So, um, yeah, I, I hope that we can bridge the two. The way to do it is, um, is communication, is uh, to, 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 to talk, is for people in the private sector to seek uh, a conversation with the government and the other way around. Um, ideally, even join, move across more often. Uh, try a couple of years in government, see what it's like. Um, but, yeah, um, as an initial step, I would encourage anyone to talk to the other side. <laughs> 
I mean, that is definitely true. I mean, I, I tend to look around these board of advisors at all these companies and, you know, advisors advising the government, so to say. And more often than not, they're these 70 or 80 year old guys who've done a lot, but they are like not in touch with the current present or the status quo, so to say. So yeah, I think there's room of improvement for, for both sides. But anyways, this actually reminds me of um, uh, my conversation with Harry Behrens in the first episode of Frontier Talk, where he mentioned that people or retaining people rather is the most important KPI when it comes to building decentralized identity solutions. So from a governmental perspective, you know, how do you retain talent at a time when big tech is pouncing on anyone and everyone and there are so many opportunities on the market? What's your take? It's tough, right? Because um, government has way less flexibility in attracting and retaining talent than a private company. And when it comes to pay, perks, uh, potentially even career progression. So what I see as being the biggest draw of government, most people would say, you know, a fixed job for life. That's not at all what um, I would say. What I say is um, the ability to work on some of the systems that it will have, you know, the biggest impact on citizens' lives. Because imagine what would happen if governments rolled out some of these systems. At, they have the scale. They have the scale and they have the money. Mm-hmm. So... What they what they're lacking is sometimes the vision, the the tax savviness, the experience in these technologies. But if you can bring that, you can make a massive difference. And also, you're going to stand out. That's one thing I'm noticing. If you are an entrepreneur, a tech entrepreneur going into government, you're going to stand out, and that can right. be a real asset. If you have the right people around you, that can be a huge asset. And so it can be quite exciting. Um, but again, it's a different work environment. You know, when I when you run your own company and you can do whatever you want, it's certainly different. But also your sphere of influence and impact is smaller. So, uh, yeah, that's how I would say it. Right. Let's 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 deep dive into the sphere of influence um, concept that you just mentioned. You know, working with legacy systems requires governments to more often than not outsource projects involving newer systems to vendors. However, as you might know, there's often a suspicion involved whenever you come in as a vendor because... There's always an ulterior motive involved, which is to say, sell a product or a service. Do you have any tips for vendors to, to say, overcome such an image and perhaps be more authentic? Yeah, I mean, I used to be a vendor for six years, mm-hmm. uh, and I spoke a lot to governments. So I know what you mean, uh, and I'm on the other side, <laughs> being approached by vendors. So, thankfully, <laughs> I, I I get it. Um, I mean, for me, it's it's what we said earlier, right? If you're trying to sell, listen, um, and try to help. So I get so many messages from people who are like literally in the first message they write to me, they sell their solution. And that that's just never going to go anywhere, right? These might be brilliant people with so much information to share, but they're not going to get past that first hurdle. And so for me, what I've seen work really well is um, there are people who run some you know SSI companies that I'm familiar with who just share their knowledge and experience with us. And that's so valuable. You know, when somebody just sends you an email like, hey, by the way, you might already be familiar with this, but did you see that this company or this government did this and this is how it relates to what you're doing? That's amazing because I probably didn't know. And that's how you build trust, right? Like that's how you you show you're helpful, you show you have experience, you build trust. And uh, you're going to get to talk about your solution at some point. Um, But initially give advice, give experience, give help. Um, and create trust with the other person. Otherwise, government is, as you said, I don't. Ulterior motive almost sounds a bit too harsh. I wouldn't say that, mm-hmm. but you kind of know that you're almost, you're almost always trying to keep private companies at arm's length. Also, some sometimes for valid reasons because you can get into trouble if in certain situations you don't. 
Um, that's why I would say just uh, try to be helpful, first and foremost. Right. I mean, it's it's fascinating because, I mean, the more I spend time with people, the more I realize that intelligence is actually domain specific and not generic in nature. You know, what I perceived before was that if anyone was smart, I thought he or she would be intelligent across a wide range of domains. But <laughs> that's actually not the case. You know, you might be able to build the most incredible rocket for that matter, but you could be someone who just doesn't empathize with people or just can't build that yeah. sort of trust level. So it's about building yourself in multiple spheres to just be this complete rounded person that you can be um yeah that's my philosophy for the day uh anyway so what's, <laughs> what's the what's the area of innovation that that you sebastian manhart is spending most time wrestling with at the moment intersection of blockchain and government because yeah. i i think it's going to change everything slowly sector by sector and uh i think uh, especially government is, is is currently still too uh, reluctant to open their eyes to it and so right. yeah, that's probably the most interesting innovation I see. Amazing. Right. So that was a fascinating conversation. But now it's time for the best part of the podcast, which is, <laughs> which is Frontier Fire, where I put my guests on the spot and ask them a series of rapid fire questions. So Sebastian, are you ready for this challenge? I'll try. <laughs> Let's go. Describe yourself in three words. Um, I'd say uh, passionate. Uh, risk-taking and curious. Brilliant. What's your mantra in life? To embrace change, because I think that change uh, makes us a better individual and professional. So trying to regularly get out of your comfort zone and embrace that. Right. And now hear me out. What important truth do very few people agree with you on? <laughs> uh, that as knowledge workers, we need to optimize productivity and what that means is to work less like and i mean less and less and less i think that somebody who works 20 25 hours a week might have a much higher quality output and therefore more impact than somebody who works 50 or 60 or 70 hours a week and so most people will disagree with me on this but i think that as a knowledge worker where the quality of your interactions the quality of your of your ideas matters more than anything um you need to you need to force yourself to work less because otherwise you're not going to be at your best could you perhaps elaborate on that? I know this is a rapid fire round, but that is a very interesting take. So I'm just going to diverge. Sorry, guys. Yeah, I, it's, it's just my personal experience. My experience mm -hmm. is I, I did both, right? And um, when I was an entrepreneur working crazy hours, I got my shit done. I had the mm -hmm. output, but and I thought I had the quality. But when I reduced my hours and I started to be able to breathe and see and think, I actually realized that the quality of my interactions with people, the quality of what I was suggesting and saying and doing was infinitely higher. And right. so overall, my impact was much higher when I work or is much higher when I work 25 hours a week than when I work 70. So I tried to structure my life to work less and less. <laughs> and I actually think that serves my employers well. And this is something that I think yeah, most people find very counterintuitive. Uh, because we're kind of fully bought into this like workaholic uh, mm -hmm. culture, which I think is complete bullshit. Right. Um, and so, yeah, that's something that I don't think everyone will agree with me on. <laughs> Brilliant. So the moral of the story is procrastination is the key to success. I'm going to remember that for sure. Um, <laughs> so, so again, what's the best piece of career advice you received? Um, I guess it depends what position you find yourself in. But for me, it's always been one person once told me, identify whatever you really dislike 
in your professional life and find mm -hmm. someone who just loves it. And when you do that, you, I mean, it's, it's basic delegation, but it, if you enforce that all the time, you end up working on the things you love all the time. And you have someone else who works on the things that you find utterly boring and they are having a great time. And so this is something that I really recommend whenever you're doing, even like if you, anything you can, you realize you're doing five times and you don't like it is the way to give it to someone else who loves it. And right. often there is. So, yeah. Brilliant. Um, a person who inspires you and why? Um, Angela Merkel. And uh, I'm saying this, I don't agree with her political views, okay. but uh, I just have so much respect and admiration for someone who managed for 16 years to keep her calm, keep her shit together, be passionate about everything she was doing, learn so much about everything in a changing world and kind of be that almost that pole of tranquility and, and reason uh, in a world that is getting increasingly crazy. And so having worked also in the chancery, having had the luck to work in the chancery still with her there, um, I've been even more impressed. And so for me, uh, yeah, she's very inspiring. Absolutely. I think it's, 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 it's very rare to find someone of such stoicism in a crazy world, as you just mentioned. Uh, <laughs> yeah, things are going to yeah, a pretty bad place, in my opinion, but that's for later. Um, finally, what's your advice to anyone listening to this podcast? I would repeat what I said earlier, which is mm -hmm. try to bridge that divide. If you are in the tech scene, if you're in the private sector, talk to policymakers. They need to, to hear what you have to say, but do it in a way that comes from a place of help and advice. And if you're a policymaker, if you're in government, you also need to be aware of that divide. So try to bridge it and try to talk to the people who are pushing the envelope in the sector. Um, yeah. On that note, Sebastian, I genuinely want to thank you for enlightening us about the transformational power of tech and its applicability by governments. Government officials are usually trained to give diplomatic answers, so I must give you extra credit for being super transparent and authentic on this part. <laughs> I genuinely wish you the best of luck in all of your endeavors moving forward and really look forward to seeing a lot of your work come to fruition in the coming months and years. Thank you so much, Sebastian. Thank you, Raj, for having me. So that concludes another episode of the Frontier Talk podcast. I really enjoyed this conversation with Sebastian that explored the intersection of government, citizens and tech. And I hope you enjoyed this conversation too. If you did, please share this with anyone you think might find this information useful. Now, on a personal note, it is really fulfilling to see a little community being born out of this podcast. And to our audience, we sincerely urge you to please share your thoughts, comments, and feedback via the comment section below. It is only with this that we can continue to get better in the process. Until next time, this is me, Raj Hegde, and I hope to see you all again on this fascinating journey to redefine the I in identity. Stay safe. <laughs>